0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Greetings. Welcome to another episode of the ATS Reading List podcast, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society section on medical education and trainees interested in medical education. I am PJ Gary, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Duke. Hi, guys. In this episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Hillary Dubrock to discuss two foundational articles on pulmonary arterial hypertension treatment. We will discuss the 2013 Serafin and 2015 Ambition Trials, both of which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine.
0: Dr. Dubrock is an assistant professor at medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where she serves as the program director for the Pulmonary Hypertension Fellowship and as core faculty for the Pulmonary and Critical Care General Fellowship. She completed her training at the Harvard combined program and her research interests include pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary vascular complications of liver disease. We're excited to get our view on these articles and help you make a dent in your reading list. So let's get into it.
1: Dr. DeBrock, thank you for joining us today. Since these studies were published a few years ago now, it's probably a good idea to put them in some context. Can you recall what the landscape was looking like for pH therapy and research surrounding pH therapy around 2013 when the seraphim trial was published?
2: Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, First of all, I'd also like to start by saying thank you for the opportunity to talk about these two really landmark clinical trials in pulmonary arterial hypertension. I think they're both really important studies that transformed how we approach pH clinical research and study design, as well as treatment of pulmonary hypertension. And now to move on and answer your question about putting things into context, I was a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the time in 2013. So I wasn't fully immersed in pH clinical practice yet, but I do remember it being a year that was a really exciting time in the field of pulmonary hypertension. So studies like seraphim that we'll talk about, which led to the approval of massatentan, were published, as well as other important studies of novel classes of therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, such as the randomized controlled trial of rio a soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator in pulmonary arterial hypertension and CTEF. And these studies ultimately led to the approval of rio for PAH and inoperable or residual CTEF, um, and were also published the same year in 2013. Other large long-term clinical trials of novel therapeutics were also underway at the time. And as a fellow, it seemed to me that PAH transitioned into more of a kind of a mainstream field with, again, several PAH-related publications in high-impact journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, and also increasing recognition that pulmonary arterial hypertension was treatable and that treatment was effective in delaying disease progression.
1: That's a lot to take in. And it's really interesting to think about because Throughout my entire training, I feel like there, there have just been therapies available for pH patients. So that perspective that this time was a huge transition point, it, it really puts it into focus for us. Great. These two studies specifically evaluated therapies for pulmonary arterial hypertension or PAH. These patients are also referred to as having WHO group one pulmonary hypertension. What about PAH compared to other groups of PH? Do you think we should keep in mind as we move forward in this discussion?
2: I think it's important to note that these articles, as you mentioned, are both for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so you can't extrapolate the findings and the results for these studies to other groups of pulmonary hypertension, like groups two through five. Uh, And so that's just important thing to keep in the back of your mind that the terms pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary arterial hypertension are not interchangeable. So PAH refers to pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension with a specific clinical classification of that group one pulmonary hypertension.
0: For my review of Seraphim, Dr. Brock, it seemed like it was a landmark study. Um, it seemed like the first long-term pH trial with morbidity and mortality as a primary endpoint. So just to remind our listeners, this primary endpoint was defined as time from the initiation of treatment to the first event related to PAH, and they defined one of these as worsening disease, which I thought was interesting that it included both a decrease in six-minute walk time by fifteen percent, and confirmed on repeat testing, and symptom uh, symptom worsening, and the need for additional therapy. In addition, those primary endpoints was initiation of IV or sub Q prostaglandins, lung transplant, or atrial septostomy, or death from any other cause. If we consider that as a primary endpoint, how do you feel that the outcome measures chosen for worsening of pH applies to your everyday practice, especially when considering the composite nature of that endpoint with all of these measures combined?
2: That's an important question. I think, you know, as you mentioned, seraphin was a, a landmark study as this first large of long-term morbidity and mortality event-driven clinical trial in pulmonary arterial hypertension, and so before that, clinical trials were really like 12 to 16 weeks in duration with a primary endpoint of just six-minute walk distance. So certainly, this composite in outcome, as you mentioned, of these you know clinical worsening, hospitalization, all of these features that you've outlined, was much different than pri- previous clinical trials in pulmonary arterial hypertension. But certainly I think it is more important and relevant for both patients and clinicians. In clinical practice, your treatment goals align much more with these clinically driven endpoints than just six-minute walk distance alone. Um, so you, you know, my goals when I'm treating patients with pulmonary hypertension are to slow disease progression, to prevent clinical worsening, and to prevent hospitalizations and obviously improve survival. And not one of those things is any significantly more important than the other, but they are all important. So I think these composite outcomes, you know, help with the extrapolate into clinical practice very well, as opposed to just having one outcome, like six minute walk distance. It also helps because obviously if you chose just one of those things like survival, you'd have to study patients for much longer and include many more patients in clinical trials. So it helps to adequately power your studies as well. Uh, And then I think the the last point I'd make about the composite outcome is that it reflects that the initial morbidity event in any individual's clinical course can vary. So some patients, their initial uh, morbidity event may be clinical worsening. Some may have an initial event of hospitalization or death um, with the latter fortunately being less common um, and often preceded by hospitalization or clinical worsening.
0: I think that's super important to point out how the complexity of actually taking care of these patients when you compare to the research can can help inform those decisions. Out of curiosity, when you look at these studies, how much do you consider the baseline characteristics of the included patients?
2: Uh, It's really important to understand the baseline characteristics of patients in clinical trials because it might not always reflect your clinical practice I think also knowing, uh, for example, the inclusion and exclusion criteria and how that impacts your generalizability is important. Uh, for example, the patients in Seraphim are overall pretty similar to the patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension that I see in clinical practice with respect to variables like gender and pulmonary arterial hypertension etiology. But the patients I see in clinic also tend to be somewhat older. And so, you know, certainly that impacts how I um, extrapolate these results to my patient population. And then there's also some subgroups, for example, like portal pulmonary hypertension, which is an interest of mine that weren't included in this study. And so again, you can't necessarily extrapolate the results of studies like this to, um, groups that weren't included or either weren't well represented, um, in the study population.
1: Let's dig a little deeper into the patient population that was included in this study. Specifically, Seraphin had a predominantly white female patient population with idiopathic and connective tissue disease-associated causes of pH. How does this frame how you approach this data in your day-to-day practice, Dr. DeBrock?
2: I think similar to um, the last comment, I think of the clinical trial population and, again, how it reflects my clinical practice. And most of the patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension that I see do have idiopathic or connective tissue disease um, associated pulmonary hypertension. So um, obviously I think that uh, well reflects the patients that I see and uh, helps me to understand what the treatment effect are, is in, in those patient groups. When We look
0: at Seraphim, the authors used an intention to treat analysis and many patients in each group actually discontinued the double-blinded treatment due to disease progression. If we look a little bit further into the trial, is there anything about the study design that we should consider when analyzing the results?
2: I'd highlight a couple points, I think with the um, intention to treat analysis and study, um, study drug discontinuation. First of all, I think it's important that study drug discontinuation rates were similar in all of the groups. And so it didn't seem to be driven, for example, by a medication side effect. And then in seraphim, there was a three milligram dose and a 10 milligram dose arm. And so it also didn't seem to be that there was any, you know, study discontinuation rate that seemed to be dose dependent either. When there's premature discontinuation of study treatment, it's also helpful for studies to report results of sensitivity analyses to ensure that the findings are consistent with the primary intention to treat analysis. And the authors of the study did and found that the findings were overall consistent with the primary analysis. So I think that's important. Lastly, I would just mention that the median duration of treatment was close to two years in this study. So that's a long time for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. A lot can happen with their treatment as well as their disease progression over such a long time interval.
1: Awesome. Excellent points. So what I noticed was that worsening of PAH and RV failure occurred relatively frequently in the seraphin study, and it occurred more often in the placebo group. As far as I can interpret, these were deemed to be adverse events due to the study protocols that were put in place. How do you incorporate this into your discussions or or your thoughts and interpretations of this data?
2: This finding mostly highlights to me the importance of treating pulmonary arterial hypertension and now of treating PAH with combination therapy. So although the majority of patients in the study were on background therapy, PAH is a progressive disease, and so worsening of pulmonary arterial hypertension and development of RV failure is unfortunately related to natural progression of disease and is not, you know, unexpected. And so that's essentially what we're observing in the placebo arm, even though some of them are also on background therapy. And uh, I'd also highlight that though these were listed as adverse events, most of the PAH worsening and RV failure events were also reported as primary endpoint events as they did represent clinical worsening of pulmonary hypertension.
0: This is a post-hoc analysis, but there was a study published in 2015 looking at and highlighting the difference between incident patients and prevalent patients. Incident patients were defined as having less than six months from diagnosis to enrollment versus prevalent patients being greater than six months from diagnosis to enrollment. Interesting, this post hoc analysis showed that there was a greater portion of incident patients that experienced disease progression events compared with prevalent patients, yet there was no difference in the risk of all cause death between the cohorts. The difference in disease progression was observed despite there being no clinical significant difference in baseline hemodynamics between the incident and prevalent cohort. And During the study, macotentin 10 milligrams improved long-term outcomes in both incident and prevalent patients as evidenced by a reduction in the risk of disease progression events, regardless of the time from diagnosis. How did that analysis change your treatment of these patients?
2: I think, first of all, as a post-hoc analysis, I'd consider it exploratory. I think you should always kind of view these post-hoc analyses with a grain of salt. Um, and as somewhat exploratory in nature. I think they're informative and insightful, but the results that need to be interpreted in that context. It, it's a little bit of a challenging question in that um, these patients were treatment naive but were incidents or prevalent defined as their time from diagnosis. And certainly, you know, in the current day and era, and as far as I've been as long as I've been treating pulmonary hypertension, I you know, would never have a patient really who's treatment naive in more than six months from diagnosis, that would be a terrible thing on my part. (laughs) And so, um, it doesn't necessarily apply to the patients that I'm seeing. I'm certainly starting upfront therapy in patients, but I think my take home from this post-talk analysis was that methotentine was associated with improved long-term outcomes in both incident and prevalent patients, And reduce the risk of disease progression regardless of the time since diagnosis. But, um, you know, I think the general take-home is that mastotentin can be effective even as a first-line therapy. It's never too late to start pulmonary arterial hypertension therapy, but the sooner the better.
1: (laughs) Makes sense. Let's transition a little bit to our next study. So it seems like the data from the serafin trial changed the way pH research was approached overall, as you mentioned earlier, after this publication, if you can recall, what was the feeling in the pH community that led up to the ambition trial, our next study that we're going to talk about?
2: Um, Great question. I was still a uh, pulmonary critical care (laughs) fellow. Um, Although published in 2015, I think it's important to know that Ambition was actually enrolling patients during the time period that Seraphim came out. Um, So it was conducted between 2010 and 2014. And around that time, I think we were kind of grappling with this problem, which is a good problem to have, (laughs) was that we had increased availability of treatment options and these three different treatment pathways. But the question arose of how we should use these medications in terms of treatment approach. I think it's always been very clear that patients with functional class four symptoms, you know, uh, severe right heart failure, uh, be treated with upfront parenteral prostacyclin therapy. But the optimal approach for most patients that we're seeing, those with functional class two or functional class three symptoms, was less clear. And so You know, what class of medications do you start first? When do you add a second medication? Is upfront combination better than sequential combination therapy? I think these questions came from a place of fortunately having more treatment options available, but were really unanswered at the time.
0: You touched a little bit on this, um, Dr. Dubrock, but I was wondering when you look at Seraphim versus Ambition, this trial was different from Seraphim and in that it included only patients who are not already on PAH therapy. What are the big things that stand out to you about the ambition trial?
2: So in ambition, I think to, to summarize what they did, they compared upfront combination therapy with Tadalafil and ambrisentan to monotherapy with Tadalafil or ambrisentan alone. And they found that upfront combination therapy was well tolerated and resulted in a reduction in clinical failure events compared to the pooled monotherapy groups. So really a dramatic difference in how they defined their composite outcome of clinical failure. What stands out to me about this study was that it wasn't a placebo-controlled trial or a head-to-head study comparing two different medications, but rather a trial that compared treatment approaches And practically speaking, this is really important in the day-to-day clinical practice of pulmonary hypertension. You see a patient with newly diagnosed PH, what do you do? What do you start? When? And I think ambition really provided guidance to help answer those very clinically relevant questions and ultimately led to this paradigm shift with modification of the ESC-ERS guidelines for treatment of pulmonary hypertension and treatment recommendations from the Sixth World Symposium now recommending upfront combination therapy in the majority of our low to intermediate risk patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Interesting that
0: you mentioned the focus on the different approaches. In this trial, ambition eventually went on to exclude patients, even at risk for diastolic dysfunction, which led to around about 100 patients being excluded. Can you outline why this exclusion of patients with left ventricular diastolic dysfunction was considered important, and then, as a second, very follow up question, do you think in being so stringent as to exclude based on risk factors rather than the presence of actual disease that this limits the trial's overall generalizability?
2: Yeah, great question. I think, you know, to start, I'd maybe step back and, and mention that there's been this interesting shift in demographics of pulmonary arterial hypertension over time with an increasing age at the time of diagnosis. And so idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, which represents about half of patients included in both of these studies in particular, has been increasingly diagnosed in older adults. So in the initial NIH registry, for example, the average age was 36 and that that was in the nineties. And now in more recent contemporary registries, the average age of pulmonary arterial hypertension is 50 to 65 at diagnosis. And so there's been this increasing age at the time of diagnosis. And you can even see that comparing seraphin to ambition. And so patients enrolled in ambition had an average age of 55 versus 46 in seraphim, which was just a few years earlier. So in particular, in these older patients, it's really important to make sure that your diagnosis is accurate, similar to what we talked about in the beginning. So these studies apply to pulmonary arterial hypertension but a lot of what we see in pulmonary hypertension clinic is group two pulmonary hypertension or those with heFPEF or risk factors for hefPEF or diastolic dysfunction. And you obviously want to make sure that you're enrolling patients in the study that have the disease and not just trying to treat a condition like heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, in which we know that pH therapy is not effective. So I think you know, from a clinical trial design perspective, I think it makes sense to ensure that you're excluding patients with diastolic dysfunction, particularly with these older patients that were included in the study. Um, and But from a real world clinical practice perspective, as you mentioned, it does limit generalizability. And many of the patients I see do have risk factors for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or have a mixed phenotype of pH. And thus it's hard to generalize the study results to those patients And I tend to have a similar approach to treatment, but I'm certainly more vigilant when starting upfront combination therapy, monitoring for any side effects, um, such as, you know, worsening or unmasking occult heart failure with preserved ejection fraction.
1: Awesome. I thought that was a really interesting point. And it's, it's one of the main criticisms that I could find of this study overall. So that's really helpful to walk through. Another thing I thought was interesting was this clinical endpoint committee that they utilize to adjudicate clinical measures. What are your thoughts on the endpoint used in ambition of unsatisfactory long-term clinical response, which they assessed at six months?
2: So it's... Important, particularly for these somewhat vague outcomes, I think, to have these adjudication committees and clinical endpoint committees because they are harder to define. Um, It's certainly not, you know, mortality, which is obviously a very clear, hard endpoint. And so having these blinded adjudication committees is really helpful in the study design and helps you ensure that it's not biased in any way as well. Unsatisfactory long-term response was defined as a combination of decrease in baseline six-minute walk distance at two consecutive visits, um, separated by at least 14 days, and the functional class three symptoms at two visits separated by at least six months. So obviously one issue is that only patients who were in the study for at least six months were eligible for this part of the composite outcome but in the longitudinal management of pulmonary arterial hypertension, I think it's reasonable to define failure as they did here by essentially worsening or by you know, not getting better or meeting our treatment targets. So kind of this unsatisfactory treatment response. Uh, I think if the primary endpoint had been driven mostly by this unsatisfactory you know, long-term treatment response, I would have been a bit more skeptical of the study results, but, um, I think it's reasonable to include it as part of the composite outcome since it's still an an important endpoint uh, in the longitudinal management. You mentioned the
0: six minute walk and it seems safe to say at least based on these two studies that a decrease in six minute walk distance by 15% is a reliable objective measure of a clinical change. Worsening of symptoms, progression of disease, that that seems a bit more complicated as these were defined a bit differently in each of the studies. How do you think we should be thinking about progression of PAH?
2: Progression or clinical worsening of pulmonary arterial hypertension can be hard to define and was defined slightly differently in, in these studies, as you point out. I think both of the study definitions that they used are reasonable definitions. Um, from a clinical trial perspective, I agree with a combination endpoint as we discussed earlier, defined as you know decreased exercise capacity, you know functional class, disease progression, uh, lung transplantation, atrial septostomy, or death. Those are obviously important outcomes. In clinical practice, it's it's a little bit more complicated to define. <laughs> so, for example, um, you know I think one of the findings was that in ambition. There was no significant difference in a WHO functional class change from baseline among the different groups. And this is a little bit surprising, but I'd emphasize that there's the wide spectrum of symptoms that fall within functional class two to three. And when you're seeing patients on an individual basis, they might feel worse or better without really changing their functional class. And so we incorporate those things, you know, how the individual patient feels, but also other factors such as pulmonary hemodynamics right ventricular function, NT-proBNP, quality of life. These are all super important variables in clinical practice when you're thinking about progression of pulmonary hypertension um, or clinical worsening in your management of patients.
1: That was really helpful in figuring out how to take these data and apply them to an actual patient population that you're seeing. Along somewhat similar lines, I think it's important to note that in both of these large randomized clinical trials, the study drugs seem to be relatively well tolerated in both groups, and hospitalizations due to PAH were most significantly impacted. Would you agree with that, Dr. Dubrock?
2: Yes, I completely agree. I think overall, the medications were well tolerated with kind of anticipated side effects based on the drug classes of. Nasopharyngitis, headache, and anemia for macetetan, and peripheral edema, headache, nasal congestion, and anemia being slightly more common in the combination group versus the pooled monotherapy group in ambition. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, these adverse effects generally didn't lead to significant differences in study drug discontinuation, which was important. And both approaches um, in both studies reduced PAH hospitalizations, which we know is an important independent prognostic indicator in pulmonary arterial hypertension.
0: The approach using ambition with initial combination therapy being superior to initial monotherapy always makes me wonder if I start two drugs at the same time, I won't be able to distinguish the culprit drug if a patient develops side effects. Uh, Even yesterday in my continuity clinic, I told the patient We need to do one thing at a time so we know what's making you better or worse. What do you do in your practice, given these approach in the ambition trial?
2: Great question. I tend to have the same concern that you do. Uh, And I I also worry about overwhelming patients sometimes with starting two brand new drugs at once. Um, My typical approach is to stagger the start time of um, my PD-5 inhibitor and my endothelin receptor antagonist by two to four weeks. Uh, And I think the initial treatment approach is still the same. I'm not waiting for some clinical deterioration or some event to start that second drug. I'm, I'm basically starting the paperwork for both drugs at the same time in terms of getting insurance approval and things like that. But just instruct patients to start one and then to start the second one, usually about two to four weeks later, kind of depending on how urgent I think it is for them to be on their second medication. And I think that helps with helping um, patients adjust to being on one medication at a time and differentiating uh, side effects and and things like that as well.
1: I get potentially a little controversial here, but one thing that struck me was how industry sponsorship was involved in both of these trials. When you consider the results of these trials, how does that factor in at all into your view of the article and the results?
2: So great question. I think as a fellow, I probably would have had the same um, you know, concern, but in you know, my old age, <laughs> I would say it doesn't really factor into my interpretation of the study and its results. I think both were performed with appropriate oversight, steering committees, involvement of clinician investigators who also had access to the data. And the reality of studies like these is that industry sponsorship is really necessary for successful completion of long-term clinical trials in rare diseases like PAH. So I don't think it impacts the overall value of either of these studies, and it's kind of just the way things are. <laughs> but it, it took me a while to learn that. I would say.
1: <laughs> I love it. I appreciate you keeping me in my in my place as a fellow. So. As we finish up here, we're, we're really curious, Dr. DeBrock, if you had to give an impact factor to these publications on how much they impact everyday practice for PAH patients, what would you give them?
2: Great question. I think you know these are both really high impact studies in the field of pulmonary arterial hypertension Seraphine, and that it changed how we approach clinical research and study design and clinical trials in PAH with these clinically event driven morbidity and mortality endpoints that ultimately matter more to patients and clinicians. And ambition, and that it really changed the treatment paradigm for PAH with upfront combination therapy now really being the standard of care for most of our PAH patients. I think they both really had a huge impact on the field, um, of pulmonary arterial hypertension.
1: Oh, there we have it. Thank you, Dr. DeBrock for joining us for this excellent episode and for all of your thoughts on both of these studies.
0: And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the ATS reading list podcast was as always brought to you by the American thoracic society section on medical education. If you enjoyed this content, please like rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts.
1: Thanks again for listening and have a great day.